You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. To this week's episode of Coming Up for Air, I am Annie Highwater, author of the book Unhooked, and we are produced by Allies in Recovery, founded by Dominique Simone Levine. Um, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Lori, who has a special guest this week. So, Lori, take it away. Hi, Annie. How are you this week? Good. Good. Um, so, today we have a special guest out of North Carolina. South Hi, it's, uh, I'm sorry, South, South Carolina? Carolina? Is yes. it really? Yes. I've, I've got North written everywhere. Um, but, but the good thing is, is South Carolina is where Hilton Head is, yes? Yes, it is. Okay. It's a good place to be right now in Hilton Head, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're here with Richard Jones from the um, drug cartel. Is that, is that what you call yourself? Uh, recovery, or recovery cartel. cartel. Yep. Recovery okay. cartel and, and, and Favor Greenville, Faces and Voices of Recovery. Greenville, South Carolina. Favor Greenville. Okay, so Favor, is that an acronym or is that an actual town? So it's uh, Faces and Voices of Recovery. You'll hear Favor is used a lot of different places for a lot of different organizations. Nobody owns the name Favor, so we all kind of just throw it around. And ours is uh, our, our location is in Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. So we're not very creative. We call ourselves Favor Greenville. Very, very, very straightforward. Yeah, it works. I like it. <laughs> um, okay, so could you just give us an overview and just tell us about yourself, how you got involved in recovery, and what appears to me that you're really involved in helping the families that are struggling with someone that with, um, with substance use disorder. Yeah, so um, I'm in recovery. I'm a person long-term recovery. It's been 16 years. I guess you could say I was on the front end of the opioid epidemic. I became addicted to uh, prescription pain pills. I was in a car accident and you know, just classic story from there. I had a documented neck injury and um, I quickly descended into using these things recreationally. At that period of time, this is like 1999, uh, you really didn't, heroin wasn't an available drug on a mainstream basis. So I never moved into that. I have no doubt I would have, I would have done that. I was, I guess you would call me a high functioning addict, a high functioning alcoholic. I held a job. I was no one really knew what was going on except my wife and my kids. Then I entered into recovery, and after I got into recovery, I became a therapist, and um, I, I worked uh, in a lot of real traditional settings, like inpatient. I've run inpatient rehabs, community-based mental health, private practice. I'm an interventionist. About four, about five years ago, I moved out of the treatment world into this thing, this recovery management world, this brave new world that really is undefined. And so what we've used is a peer recovery model at Favor Greenville with the idea of being people in recovery and family members in recovery helping one another. 
through this process. And um, I, I started a family group. To be perfectly honest, we stumbled into it. I started a family group in the first week, maybe 10 or 12 people showed up. I, I think they liked the message that we were carrying. It was a little different. We weren't we weren't telling families to just kind of take care of themselves. We were entering into the process with them and helping them figure out if they could do anything with their loved one. So we did a lot of interventions. We did a lot of family meetings and it's just grown from there over the last, um, over the last five years. And uh, every Monday night we do a group and it averages around 60 to 65 parents. And we've added three additional groups because of, of the demand. And that's where our family approach has come from. We serve 17,000 folks and almost half are family members. We've got 8,000 family members involved in our program. Provided over 20,000 hours of recovery coaching along the way. And we've just developed a, you know, we kind of think of it as our own model on helping people, helping, and I'll be honest with you, you know, a lot of parents, mostly parents, if, if you want to get down to the nitty gritty, mostly parents, and uh, one of the things that I came and got in touch with really, really quickly is, and it's going to sound incredibly obvious, but I'll tell you, in the treatment world, they don't really acknowledge this. There's a difference between parent recovery and spouse recovery. There is. We were just saying that in a random phone call yesterday. You're absolutely right. There is yep. an intense one. A huge difference. Right. And so for my wife to be able to detach from me, that was one thing for her to be able to step back. That's that makes a lot of sense for for a spouse. Yeah. But for a mom, for example, to tell a mom you got to you got to let go of your kid, that's a completely counterintuitive process. And then what we've done as a society is we've labeled that we've we've thrown this word enabling yeah. around, and that makes parents feel like crap. You can see their body uh, when it, you know they'll they'll, they'll say. I'm the world's worst enabler, and you'll see the body language change. So we don't use that word. You're not allowed to use that word in our groups. There are two, two terms that we challenge. One is enabling, and the other one is tough love. Mm-hmm. We do, too. Yeah. We call it smart love. Yeah. We just call it, yeah, I call it the appropriate expression of love. Yes. And um, so I have a four-year-old son, and if he wants to drive my car, I have, if I want to show my love for him, I set a boundary and say, you're not allowed to drive the car. Tough love implies you got to be mean. Yeah. You got to just cut off. Yeah. And don't even give him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. My goodness. Anything you do and all that, all of that is based on a cliche. It's all based on a myth. I often say it's the grand tragedy of addiction is our healthcare response to addiction is based on cliches and and uh, mythological phrases and sayings that popped up out of 12-step meetings. And the, and the 12-step programs never intended them to be hijacked and become the basis for everything we do. Right. Those things that people started to say, they've never been researched, they've never been proven. Right. And so we challenged that very fundamental assumption. Right. It's, it's interesting because that's Exactly. Uh, earlier in our podcast, we covered this one topic, and it was all the sayings that you get out of these um, these meetings, these twelve step meetings, and 
it was looking at these different sayings that they did help me. I, I, I have to say they helped me a tremendous amount as a parent in the past through uh, many a Naranon or Al-Anon meeting that I went through. It really helped me gain some footing and gain a good foundation. But I am a very... I'm a very honorary kind of person. I never take things. St- I, I never listen to exactly what you're saying to me or, or I do, but I pull it apart and I'm like, well, that just doesn't, it makes sense here, but it doesn't make sense in this case, you know? So, so listening to all of these cliches, like you've got to let him hit rock bottom. That was right. one of them for me. It was like, well, my son, my first introduction to the opiate epidemic was my son overdosed dosing and them coming out and telling me at no less than four times that he wasn't going to make it and I was immediately you know running through funeral arrangements in my head and not believing that this is what I'm going through I, I often said to myself well rock bottom how, how much farther can he go and and that you know that overdose was not enough for him to go into recovery that really wasn't his rock bottom so you know it just isn't even I mean there's nothing legitimate about the idea of hitting rock bottom from a from a treatment or a healthcare standpoint I believe it was it's something that people say when they don't know what else to say so you know you're talking to another person at a meeting and this person's expressing their pain and they're saying, you know, I, I don't know what else to do. The other person is, you know, at a loss. There's no good words. So they say, well, you're just going to have to step back, let go and let God and let him hit rock bottom. It, it's just filler. It's not an actual solution. The, the tragedy is, and I don't, I don't begrudge self-help groups for this. The real tragedy is that the treatment industry has grabbed a hold of that. And, and right. so that's the... That's the craziness. The, the, the folks at a self-help meeting, I mean, that's just one person trying to help another the best they can. Right. You know, there's no ethical obligation to look at this through a research lens or through an evidence-based lens. But the treatment industry has founded an entire industry on the idea that you have to hit rock bottom. And if you don't get better, it's your fault because you just didn't do exactly what we said and therefore go out and have more pain. And when you experience more pain, come back in and do exactly what we tell you to do. It's a really good business model, but it's not a really good, like, effective way to handle this issue. Right. And sometimes in the meantime, they're dying. In the meantime, now they're dying. Frankenstein drugs. and, And let me tell you something. Heroin's always been around, but if you look at the statistics, in the 1980s, heroin killed less than 10,000 people. It's not even heroin anymore. Fentanyl, carbfentanyl. It's it's not even, it's this Frankenstein synthetic killer drug. And so for us to say, like, wait till people hit rock bottom, it's almost, in my opinion, criminal to say, I, I, I won't go there. I will not do that anymore. And that's, that's why we kind of had to invent this whole other system because I couldn't play ball in that in that treatment world. Believe me, there's an easier way to do this from a business standpoint. I could just open up an outpatient clinic and do the same old, same old. But it's just not, I can't live with that anymore. Right, right. And that was, that was my thing with, I, I kind of learned that um, the whole idea of tough love, of having to have to hit rock bottom or also let go and let God, all of these sayings to me became, no, wait a minute, maybe, maybe uh, they don't need tough, tough love 
per se. Maybe, maybe what it is is really a learning process for them and for me, for my person that I want to be in recovery. Maybe it's a learning process. Maybe rock bottom isn't a specific time or, or a thing or an event that happens to them. Maybe it's a learning process of, okay, that didn't work for me, so I'm going to try this. That yeah. didn't work for me, so now I'm going to try that. Until they come to the conclusion or they find whatever it is that works for them and I find whatever it is that works for me, if right. that makes sense. No, I think that's absolutely spot on. It's a trial and error kind of thing and it's don't give up, you know, keep moving forward, try to move the needle on this process. That, that uh, you know, as you, as a parent tries to set boundaries, you start to learn what you can do with boundaries, what you can't do with boundaries. Then you see how the person responds to that. It's not this zero-sum game where you're either doing recovery or you're not doing recovery. It's not black and white like that at all. Right. What do you say in, in, um, in opposition of let them hit rock bottom and any good thing you do is enabling? What do you say instead of those things? Because in lieu of those things, something needs to be in place. So what are your recommendations in lieu of those things? Well, we think, we think what's going on is actually the parents and family members are being shorted by the system. In other words, there is no uh, health care response to, to this other than you got to wait till he hits rock bottom and go to a rehab. So what we think is, is we need to have more um, in, in, in the community, in the world, interventions available for families. So, uh, for example, here in Greenville, we go to people's homes and visit with kids. We play basketball with kids. I, I use the term kids broadly. I'm talking like 13 to 30. Yeah. You know, yes. Some people are still kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and we, uh, and you don't have to, like, you can come to our groups and still be smoking marijuana because you're not convinced you need to be totally abstinent. You know, and we've gotten criticized for that. And I'll tell you, the single biggest thing that happened to me in my career was I really, truly don't care what anyone says about me anymore. I, I would play it close to the best for a long time because I wanted to be part of the club. I wanted to be accepted at the treatment conferences. I wanted to be sitting at the I wanted to be sitting at the popular kids' lunch table at the treatment conferences. And as soon as I started to do these different things, they call us the hippie meeting, and they say like, "Oh, Favor Greenville is okay with people smoking marijuana." We're not okay with that at all. Mm-hmm. But what it is is we would rather have you showing up. So I'm not going to give you a speech right now. If your goal is I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to quit using heroin, and I'm going to smoke weed, it's exactly what you had said. We're going to stick with you as you find out that this isn't going to work so that we can quickly pull you back in. So um, you know, the- I, I want to share something with you. Um, and Annie, I, I've never actually <laughs> told you this, but that was actually our approach with our son when he went into recovery. So my son, his choice of his drug of choice rather was was heroin, and um, he went off of heroin, but he started smoking pot. It, you know, our options. I I felt for me it, it was okay. I'm not going to convince him to not smoke pot, and and. I have to respect his choices that he's making for himself. He is taking steps towards uh, keeping from using opiate, opiates, yeah. which is, you know, so I was like, okay, I'll take that in this moment and I'll respect his decisions. I'm going to step back. I'm not happy and I'm, and I'm really not accepting that he's smoking pot. I don't want him to smoke pot. I, you know, my preference is 
that right. he doesn't. But I'm going to sit back and just try and guide him with my words, with, you know, with setting up my own boundaries of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I'm going to just hope that through that, he will see that it's not good. And I have to tell you, it was one of the best things I did as a parent. He ended up, I don't know if you've heard about this, but he ended up with this this new thing that they're coming out with that they're finding a lot of people that smoke pot um, have this cyclical vomiting. Have you ever heard oh, of this thing? I haven't heard that. No, I haven't heard of that. Well, he ended up with this cyclical vomiting. It was awful. It was horrible. And I didn't say much, you know, just in passing one day I said, geez, I wonder if you can't stop getting sick like this because you're smoking pot. No, 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 I'm not. I'm like, oh, okay. You know? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And, And then he stopped smoking pot. He just stopped and the, it went away. Yeah. And now he says, I will never. <laughs> he was like, I was so sick. It was so awful. And he also says, I was checking out of life. Yeah. Right? So, so he, it, learned, he figured that out. He figured they, that they out. They have to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and what we should be doing as professionals, we should be involved in that conversation. So I just had a, I just had a person in the office that I met with right before we got on this podcast and his deal was uh, prescription pain pills like Xanax and uh, opioids, no heroin, but he had overdosed, wound up in the hospital, went to rehab, went to rehab and said all the right things. And this happens all the time. You go to rehab and you're in this environment where if you don't say the right thing, you get in trouble. Yeah. So the whole time he was in rehab, he was thinking about smoking marijuana, but he, he had tried to express that in group. And they were going to make him do this thing called extended care if he if, if he didn't. And so in his mind, he was like, well, if I say that, I'm going to I'm going to have to stay here longer. And so I'm just going to say the right thing. And he just started to toe the company line and he was treatment superstar. Uh-huh. You know, he was literally like named in rehab. They name you like president of the unit or something. Uh-huh. Like that. And the whole time he was thinking about smoking weed. So what do you think happened when he got home? He smoked weed. Right. And, and and now he's with us and he's literally actively wrestling with this. We were just having this conversation where I was saying, like, how is this going for you? And he's talking about being unmotivated and I don't want to do anything. Well, do you think that that has anything to do with marijuana? And, and the idea is, is can we just talk about this honestly rather than you just telling me what I want to hear? So I feel like I'm the world's greatest counselor. Yippee. I have so-and-so doing exactly what I want him to do. I would prefer to know exactly what you think rather than, rather than like you be compliant. And I think that's one of the problems we have in our approach with this particular issue. Right. It's a punishment system. Really. It's a, it's a, right. We will punish you and we will take stuff away. And I all, I'm also a firm believer in, in, People don't get the right idea of what a reward or what it is that we should be rewarding. It's like we always reward, one, we reward things that they're good at. So yeah. you're, they're already good at that. So why are we rewarding that? And then we don't reward the effort. Yeah. Right? We don't reward the, the effort. We reward what they've already done, but we don't reward the effort. And, it, and we don't reward the effort, especially if the effort doesn't win out, if they yeah. fail at something. Right. 
and it's and it becomes like a win lose game. And then if somebody makes a mistake, and then they just go back to full blown, full bore addiction. Now, where the family's concerned, we feel like we feel like that's why the family is the key part of like actually confronting this epidemic because. I don't know that professionals and the way that the system works, that we're ready to have a a massive shift in that regard. But I do think that we can educate and empower the families to become advocates and really kind of start to trust their own gut a little bit on these things as they work this out. And that's why we're so, that's why we so much stress our family coaching programs. I mean, that's why it's such a, it's almost half of what we do here. And that's a, that's a, a very unique thing for a recovery center. You usually don't see that. You won't really find that. Most of the places, uh, family is kind of like an afterthought. For us, we think it's the key part of the of the solution. Hey, Annie, while I'm thinking about it, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Allies in Recovery. Since 2002, Allies has been helping families cope with the substance use of a loved one. Join Allies in Recovery today and you will have access to a wealth of information, strategies, and a community to help you navigate the minefields of addiction. That's alliesinrecovery.net. So as you were saying... One thing I love about your website is there's a picture of an elephant in a room with people, I think, sitting at a table. I love that so much. I feel like that's kind of what we try to do. What I try to do is open healthy dialogue and have the tough conversations because that's where it begins is communicating about the tough stuff. And even for that guy to feel comfortable and safe enough to have a conversation with you without feeling like he's being shamed for relapsing because using marijuana and coming to a gradual state place of progression. And it's different for everyone. Some people need to be you know, go about it in different ways. Not It's not a one-size-fits-all recovery program for anyone. Something different works for everyone. But I love that you promote introducing the elephant, discussing the yeah. elephant. Let's look at all sides of it and discuss it because it's there. And until you discuss it, these problems get collectively worse and further from the truth. Yeah, it's the key part of it. I mean, and, and, and none of us can say that we have the exact answer figured out. But if we're willing to ask the question, then I'm sure we can start to figure out new ways to attack this thing. I, I know that there are solutions out there that none of us have even thought of yet. But if we don't ever, if we don't ever look at each other and say this isn't working, we're, we're never. We're just going to keep rolling these folks through these same exact things over and over again, and kind of crossing our fingers and hoping that all of a sudden <coughs> something will happen and magically click in. For and, and it's not. I mean, it's a fact of life. 70, when the numbers are finally in, there will be 70,000 people that have passed away from an overdose in 2016. If you look at one year, yeah, one year, more than the Vietnam War, Uh almost double what the AIDS crisis did at its peak. Uh, There's a lot of different data. And what they've done is they've taken like uh, different types of scenarios. And worst case scenario is we do nothing different. In other words, there's no shift in policy. And there's no shift in uh, no major shift in dollars. What what they're predicting in 2027 is 97,000 deaths. So you're going to start to approach, um, you know, six digits when it comes to people dying from this issue, guys. It's absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. There aren't like riots in the street over this particular. T- it's amazing that this number of people are dying, and we 
essentially, like there are folks like you and I kind of doing this and we're having rallies, but the rallies aren't accomplishing anything. Right. They're not, they're not doing anything. And, and, and what they are doing is so incremental and it's so much like the same exact thing over again. We're going to, all right, here's a little more money for the state treatment agency. I guess that's a good thing, but that's hasn't worked for 40 years. What's it going to, how's it all of a sudden going to start working now? It's right. very, very troubling. I call a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that's going on in the, in the industry to me is like just all this band-aid stuff, you Most know, years. Yeah. right. And I also like, I, I love the, the prevention and I think we need to take steps towards prevention, but I also worry about it. I, I worry about, okay, so now they are prescribing, you know, less opiates or they are really cracking down on uh, opiate prescribers and it's difficult, it's more difficult to get those drugs to start with, which is a good thing. But I also worry about, we're not changing anything when it comes to treatment or helping people when we do that. And so what's going to happen is we may have a reduction in people being introduced to these forms of drugs, but what about the people that are still right. <laughs> suffering from addiction? We're just going to forget it because the numbers have gone down. Yeah, and it'll get worse. If, if we push down on prescription drugs, heroin will pop up, and then it'll get worse before it gets better. Right. If it gets better at all. Drive people away from prescription drugs, they're going to go to the street if they can. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's that. That's my my biggest worry. And I really, I do feel like a lot of this stuff is just all, all band-aid stuff. You know, I, don't get me wrong, Narcan, it's a good thing. I want to keep as many people alive as I possibly can and give everybody as many chances as they need in order to recover. But Narcan is not a solution to the, to the problem. It, it, it's not, it's not, it doesn't, if you just give Narcan and you don't provide services, then you don't ever you don't ever stop. It, it, it's kind of like an immediate solution, but it's never a downstream solution or an upstream solution, I should say. At some point, you have to start focusing on the upstream issue, like how do we get these people off of this stuff? And and so, what we think is, you know, we have like we have a vision for a fundamentally transformed system, and I think that there are ways to do it that actually wouldn't be it wouldn't even be so bizarre. So, for example. Um, you know, when people go to rehab, why why not mandate more family involvement? Why not make the family unit the recipient of the treatment services rather than the individual? And I'm not talking like a four-day family program. I'm talking about like if I'm Blue Cross Blue Shield, I'm not going to contract with you unless you're on the phone with that mom and dad twice a week with that kid on Skype or something like that. And, and, you know, like make it make the family be the recipient of the services rather than the individual things like that, that you could start to roll in if they if they wanted to like put pressure the payers could do it i don't think they want to change because right now they're only paying for about 10 percent of the folks who have this issue and they're only paying if they show up for treatment and i think if i'm blue cross blue shield i'm perfectly comfortable with most people not seeking help because now then i'm not cutting a check you follow me? Yeah. I'm not, I mean, I'm, maybe it's cynical to say that, but I don't think they want to change anything. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's okay that 90% of the people with addiction never show up and get help. 
because that means we don't have to pay for 90% of the folks who have this issue. Pharmaceutical companies can keep prescribing, insurance companies can keep refusing to pay, you know, I mean, it, the, it's just a cycle and it yeah. just, yep. yeah, I agree with you. I Have you checked out Allies in Recovery? Because um, Allies in Recovery addresses actually a lot of these issues. I know that Dominique, uh, Dr. Dominique is trying to like work with insurance companies because the way Allies in Recovery is set up, it's really very cost efficient. Yeah. Right. And you, you, you had told me that whenever you, when you sent me the message. Yeah, it is. And, and I, I don't know if you've checked it out at all, but it is, Allies in Recovery really lines up with a lot of your philosophies and a lot of what you're doing, which is how I, I kind of ended up following you because I, I'll watch people on Facebook. I, I follow a whole bunch of different groups and then I, and then I exit out yeah. if, if I'm like, no, this isn't for me. But your particular Facebook page intrigued me. Did she sort of develop that model? Was this something that she kind of developed over time or something like that? Actually, no. Have you heard of the craft method? Oh, it's, yes. yes okay. And that's where Allies in Recovery came from was uh, she actually studied under Bob Myers in New Mexico. I got you. Yeah. So, um, so you should check it, check it out if you, if you have a moment. And for anybody not knowing, craft method is the kind of behavior modification for the community around someone addicted. It's, we always say it's um, the affected family or entourage the entourage of the person addicted because there's, I think it's one in seven people are addicted. So there's six people and there's usually up to 15 people around that one person that is affected. Family, neighbors, coworkers, a lot of coworkers. We have a situation in Ohio where major businesses are saying they're having a problem in their workforce because the epidemic has affected them and they're having such turnover. It's starting to show up in the workforces or at least they're starting to talk about it. Wow. Yeah, it's starting to affect the economy. I read that. That's yeah. amazing. So in my opinion, what affects change is usually crisis. Crisis brings about change and gets you talking about it. When, when an old pattern and an old cycle is working, even though it's not really working, when a crisis breaks through and gets you talking about it, that's when you start coming up with solution. And I think talking about it is where it begins. And, yeah, and that's one of the, I guess, the only... I wouldn't call it a silver lining because there's no silver lining about what, you know, the tragedy that's going on, but at least it is getting people to talk about addiction. I mean, for decades and decades and decades, you literally were anonymous. I mean, I, I was, I worked in the field and didn't talk about it, you know, so that, that has changed and it's definitely more front and center than I've ever seen it in my career. It is so front and center. I was just talking to my son there. At the, I don't know if it's Miss USA or Miss America. It, one of the contestants is a recovery advocate because she lost her brother and father. And I mean, presenting that as part of her stage presentation, it is so far reaching because it's in every family and, and it was hidden in private and it was an issue of shame and punishment. And, you know, that was one thing when my son went through, he's almost five years in recovery now. He had told me, you were so about punishing the slip-ups and the behavior that went along with it that I couldn't trust you. And I was out there longer than I needed to be because I didn't feel safe enough to say, okay, I'm, re I, I'm acknowledging I'm messing up and I need help now. And if you yeah. present safe conversations, I think people misunderstand kindness and compassion for stupidity or yeah. for condoning it. And it's not. Kindness and compassion opens that doorway for conversation and solution. That's so, so true. That's so true. It, it goes back to that idea that you got to be a hard, you got to be tough, 
in order to like set the boundary and put the hammer down. And if you do that, then so-and-so will go get clean. And it's just the exact opposite. It is the exact opposite. And I really thought, because I saw the enabling on intervention, I would be the Aaron Brockovich opposite and be hard nails consequence driver. And it kept him out there longer. So yeah. see, you're not going to win or control it or figure it out either way. But see, also, uh, don't you think that that's an example of um, of society's influence on us, right? It's that we're almost afraid. Oh, I'll never well, be an enabler. Well, because we think we're at fault and we're responsible right. for the outcome. And I'll never be an enabler. And and it's almost like I, I see people come into you know um, support groups and meetings and they go, oh, I'm I'm not enabling. I kicked him out. I'm not enabling. And I'm like, well, are you? Did you kick him out? because you're trying to get him to do something or did you kick him out because you think that's what society wants you to do that's what society is telling you to do that mm. right and you're afraid of being looked at as an enabler yeah you know so there's also a knee-jerk reaction to tell another person to kick so-and-so out you right you feel like that's what you're supposed to say and that that's the position that you're supposed to take I think that's one of the reasons why so many people come to our, our support groups because we reject that. And we, and we always say, you know, we're going to meet you where you're at. We understand like, even when somebody asked me for direct advice, I will make sure I front load it with, I don't know if I would be able to do this myself. Here's what I suggest you consider, but I want to go on the record that we don't judge you. And we have, you know, um, it's easier for me to say this than it may be for you to do this. to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the quarterback. And actually, that's what um, I have a a support group that I started in Rhode Island. And, and that's kind of the basis of this support group is we try not to judge one another as much as we possibly can, and try and meet everybody where they are. And not it's not about us telling you exactly what is going to work for you or how it's going to work for you. But can you think about this? Or is it is what about starting with the little tiny small step and can you make one little change in your life that might help you onto a better road and you know that kind of that kind of philosophy we have while i'm thinking about it successful intervention strategies to help a loved one deal with his or her substance use are often counterintuitive our sponsor alliesinrecovery.net offers suggestions that have been proven effective in getting loved ones into treatment and helping them stay there while reducing the stress blame and guilt we so often feel. I encourage listeners to join alliesandrecovery.net today. So as you were saying. Like five steps or, or we call it like the five-fold model of, of how we approach it and see uh, the first thing is crisis and we see that as like one distinct set of skills that families need to learn how to handle. This is the person who's actively suicidal or actively homicidal and i'm talking like it's literally like hitting the fan today they call our office and and there's you know there's not a lot of really good answers for that that's like a 911 call that's a file commitment papers that kind of thing so we feel like that's one of the phenomenon that we deal with and and we support people through that we meet them where they're at we take them through that we don't judge them if they're unable to call 911 but we educate them that this is a crisis and there's really only there's a limited amount of choices when you're in a crisis then the second phase we call stabilization and that's it's not a crisis but things still aren't okay and it's more like the fix my kid phase and this is the phase that most people get rejected 
in. This is the phase that they walk into an Al-Anon meeting and they say, fix my kid. And Al-Anon tells them, just work on yourself. And they look at the group and they think to themselves, that's ridiculous. I have no intention on working on myself. This is my son. He's going to die. So we honor that and we actively problem solve with them. Like when they call us and they want us to fix their, okay, let's, what have you done so far? Call this place, call that place. Do you want to do an intervention? And then after that, we get into what would be more of the traditional family recovery stuff. We call it acceptance. We feel like families go through a phase where they actually do decide that they can work on themselves and that they could benefit from stress management and things like that. Then we move, we move into what we call initiation, which is they start coming to our groups. They start seeing a therapist. They start talking to people. And then uh, we call it integration. And that's a lot when they give back. That's when some of the families will become a family coach for us. So those are the steps that we go through. And we'll have people in the stabilization phase for months. And, uh, and we won't judge you. You know, we will coach you through this because we know that if I start giving you a speech about it's time to kick your kid out and you're not ready to do it, yeah. I've lost you. Right. So that's kind of the, the way we think of it. You know, it's it. It's interesting that you that you're talking about this. the The second phase that you talked about, when, like when someone walks into like a Naranon meeting or an Alanon meeting, um, I wrote this whole piece on. I I had gone to see this play, and the play was about a family struggling with addiction in the family and how, you know, the different dynamics between the parents and the child and the siblings. And at the end of this play, we could have this conversation. And I said something, I asked a question about how, how can you change the conversation so that you get the best benefit in the dynamic of the family? And someone in uh, another counselor, I mean, another professional turned to me and said, he said, there is nothing you could say or do that would change anything. Yeah. And I, in my heart, know one, that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. I know that there are things that I can do and I can say to change the dynamic of, of, of the outcome. Yeah. Right. And I ended up writing a whole piece on it because when he said that to me, I felt so hopeless. I had lost all hope. He, He basically was saying to me as a parent, there's nothing you could do. So just give up. And just, get out of it. Yeah, just get out. Yeah. Right, and I and my thing was, if he had turned to me and said, you know what, the good news is there are things you can do. The good news is you can go home and make sure you have Narcan in your house and you can set up a plan so that when crisis hits, you're ready with treatment, with numbers to treatments, to this, to that, you know. And you know what, if you say something like this, like, no, I don't know how difficult it is in your life. Tell me, explain it to me, help me to understand. Yeah. Give me... Give me something I can do, something to hold on to. Yeah. Right. That's interesting because if you if you understand the historical context for family support in the addiction treatment industry, and why would a counselor say that, understand that all, all family support comes out of Al-Anon. And Al-Anon was designed for wives of alcoholic men at a time when you couldn't divorce. 
Okay, so that was the context. The cultural context in the fifties was you never, you, you didn't, you didn't divorce. So these women had to figure out how do they live with this son of a gun, you know. And so one of the ways you do it is you tell yourself there's nothing you can do. Just detach with love. Step over the sob when he passes out on the kitchen floor. You know what I mean? It was it was very mm-hmm. practical for what those women were dealing with. Right. It was never designed for the mom of an 18-year-old heroin addict. It wasn't, right, right. Even, I mean, it wasn't even a conceptualization. It, it, and again, the only reason the treatment has kind of adopted that is because treatment hasn't evolved, because treatment doesn't have to evolve, because drug addicts are scumbags, and we, you know, no one, we, we are a group that's tailor-made to be abused. I was, I don't want to say I was abused in treatment. That's not what I want to say. I mean, I was a group. Yeah. But let me tell you something. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was not, and there was no, and I, there was no one I was going to complain to. Do you follow me? Like I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. Who am I going to go to and say when I went to my alcohol treatment program? I don't think they did a good job. So we we buried our heads. You could do whatever you want with us. So this guy, he's just a, a symptom of, of an industry and a, a system that hasn't moved past that because they never had to move until now. It's your point with people are talking out, people are getting angry. Bam. I tell you, I have this thing, I want to call it the hit squad. And I want to get like seven moms and fly them around the country from treatment center to treatment center and have them evaluate the treatment center mm-hmm. rather than like Jayco or Carf. I could, you could picture it now. You see them getting out of like a, a black navigator with like tinted windows and like gangster rap <laughs> in the background. And the treatment center operators would all be shaking in their boots because you guys, I mean, the families would know the questions to ask. Right. How often are you going to call me? You know, are you going to make sure you got a release of information signed by my son so I can find out what's going on? Am I going to know the discharge plan sooner than one day before he's going to leave? Right. You know, these type of things that, and that is, that is the hope. The hope is, is that this is a, the the families are getting empowered. They're becoming, they're an empowered patient group and that's going to make all the difference in the world and that's going to benefit all of us that's going to benefit all of us who need help with this that's almost the title actually of this this piece that i wrote was empower me yeah empowered families educated families they start asking questions and i tell you what um even from a business standpoint treatment industries and treatment programs better better wake up can I ask you just one question, and then Annie, if you if you have a couple of questions you want to um, go with, I have this one question that um, I've been kind of batting it around in my head, and I, I haven't come up with like a solution, or maybe you've thought about it. But how do you get families on the same page? Yeah. I think this is one of the biggest barriers to having having this united front yeah. is is a huge piece in the recovery of everybody right yeah so we take we take through this process of identifying who needs to be on the same page and then that's where we feel like our coaching comes in that's where a lot of our one-on-one work is i mean our coaches aren't doing counseling sessions they're very it's very pragmatic and practical like how do you get your husband to come into one of these groups that kind of thing we think online support can help with that because sometimes maybe somebody will watch a video where they won't come into a group. 
you have to you have to somehow break the ice around this situation and then you have to like maybe both parties have to compromise a little bit on because what i've noticed is you usually have like one person on one end of the spectrum and one person on the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. so they bring them together at all so we would we would have family meetings to try to get that done we would have and it's not just even mom and dad it can also be grandma it can be an aunt an uncle it could be the whole the whole thing this was what we were talking about last night. How do you identify who needs to be there and how do you get them involved? And that's where you got to provide, uh, you know, those of us who work in this field, we got to be, we got to be thinking about it different. We got to reach out to all those folks. They all become their own little project in a way of how do I get you involved? You can't get anything done if you don't get them on the scene. Well, you got the, you, you need to have some intuition with that, too, because sometimes you don't know who's problematic but has a, has a united front, if that makes sense. Because yeah. you've got manipulators in families, and you've got people making the problems worse, or you've got kind of a rivalry within families. And that's a lot of work to get into. But those things all need to be unraveled because they tend to all surround, especially the most manipulative of addictions, as far as I've seen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you have to, if you look at, like, our model is based on uh, – Craft, you guys talked about craft, but ours is based on Arise, the Arise Intervention Model, which is a very, very similar approach. And um, they talk about developing a recovery message that the whole family can get in touch with, which what it kind of does is it sort of just basically says, put all your other crap on a shelf and let's figure out how to help this person for a minute. You know, you guys don't have to live happily ever after after this. So, for example, if so-and-so is drinking themselves, this happens a lot, like dad is drinking still or whatever. We would say, we don't care about that for right now. Let's get everybody to talk. How do we help Johnny right this second? And you try to, like, change the vibe where addiction becomes the enemy. Like the weapons are put down. Let's put down our weapons. Put the weapons down for right now. We'll get to these other things as we go through. We... One of the things that we've done is we've referred a lot to local family therapists because one of the things, sometimes there's a lot of baggage uh-huh. that you got to try to work through to get the person to to get to that level of, of cooperation. Uh-huh. It's really, really tough. We've had situations where mom and dad were so fragmented that one of the questions we always ask is, do you think, like, so Mrs. Jones and Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, do you think Mr. Jones loves your child, cares about your child, and is being the best parent he can be? And if the answer to that, any one of those questions is no, then we have to start there. And we have to really say, really? You think Mr. Jones doesn't love Johnny? You think that's what's going on here? Or you think he's trying not to be a good, like you have to like, we gotta have a real question. I worked in adolescent therapy in really, really tough situations. I ran an adolescent unit and I made, never met i'm telling you it's true as i'm sitting there i never met a parent who didn't actually want the best for their kids i missed i met a lot of parents who didn't know how to do it i I met a lot of parents who were overwhelmed and fear they did fear-based parenting and they they had anger management issues but i i never met the sociopath that didn't care about his son i now i'm not saying that doesn't exist i just haven't had that personal experience. Right. And I'll tell you, statistics would tell you it's less than 5% of the population. My point being, we got it. like if we can get by the blaming and we can get by the, the underlying baggage that may be, you know, leaking out in the conversation, 
You know what I mean? Like we're going to sit down and talk about what to do with Johnny, but I think that you're an SOB anyway, because you know, let's get through all that and talk about how do we help him? Right. But it's, it's one of those things, again, it's really, really easier said than done. It's a tough, tough part of the process. Very you, have get, you have to get start, started talking. While I'm thinking about it, let's thank Allies in Recovery for sponsoring Coming Up for Air. Members who join Allies in Recovery can communicate directly with us. When you join, you can ask us questions we'll address on our podcasts. You can also request topics you would like us to cover. Join today at alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show. Lori's son's in in recovery. My son's in recovery. My mother is basically literally the church lady but she is a longtime opiate abuser um, mm-hmm. and it has robbed her mind and it's caused a lot of family dysfunction. So just bringing that home, I was going to say you're very professional and you're very skilled at what you do, but you are in recovery. So you've had those days when you were li- living that life. And a lot yeah. of times somebody's functioning very brilliantly. And by the time it presents, you know, outside the family and the home and starts affecting business and all of those other things or Sunday mm-hmm. school teaching, it's been out of hand for a long time. So I was going to ask you, like, when it, I, I, I know a little deeper level of addiction because it was hidden in my family for so long and anyone calling it out was conflict. So I'm sure you've seen that as well. And that said, what was it that brought you forward and made you not only want to go into recovery, but remain in recovery? And what was it your family might have done to help that? So I think, I think it was in a classic way. They just became willing to confront it. I, I can definitely relate to what you're talking about. I was able to hold it together. Yep. And I will tell you that it did start to bleed out. It never took, I, I never totally crashed, so to speak, but it was getting much more unmanageable, if you will. And, um, and so my mom and my wife and people who cared about me got on the same page. Yeah. They did. And they got on the same page sort of, just naturally, I don't know that I'm aware of, I don't know that there was ever like a formal process to that. And it, but it took, it took a while. It probably took two years. They individually knew that there was something wrong before they got on the same page together. My dad was out of the picture. My dad, my father is still addicted to prescription pain pills, pain pills and alcohol. He, he left the family when I was like 18 and he's been estranged from the family since. So he wasn't part of that. It was, uh, mainly um, my, my, my wife's brothers, my brothers, that kind of thing. Everybody just sort of got on the same page. You know, you know, they say you need help. Everybody says you need help. They went from saying you need help to like, you're going to get help. Here's how that kind of thing. And um, I had tried like four or five times before that to, to, to get into recovery, you know? And so I was sort of ready to, to, to give it a try, but I will tell you, my plan was so never you weren't denying it. You were admitting Along with it because a lot of like if we were if, when we confronted my son it was obvious and he was younger and hadn't you know lost his facilities as much if you were to confront my mother there's no addiction happening so there has to be some acknowledgement so you I knew that it had to be with honest with that yeah I knew that I was screwed up because of these pills I did know that but I didn't think I was an addict in other words I was going to drink again you know. Yeah, I, I made the decision to not drink after I had been clean off the off of everything for about 90 days. Then I just said, all right, I'm going to buy into this total abstinence thing. But I had every intention to drink, every yeah. intention to drink. And um, I never told anyone that I just went through the motions. 
And then I just made a, a decision. I bought into the neurobiology of addiction. I bought into the dopamine and everything started to make sense to me. And then I just stayed off of alcohol. But I did know for years that the pills were a problem. I didn't know what to call it. I didn't understand exactly what it meant, but I knew it was related to the, and prescription pain pills. I got to tell you something. I was talking about this last night. It's a diabolical, diabolical addiction. You really are taking these pills, especially if you're taking them orally. You know, you really do tell yourself these are from a doctor. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I just took, you know, I just took 90, 90, I just took 30 days worth of pills in four days. But, but I needed them. I'm a doctor prescribed. Yeah, and the justification, I mean, the justification goes so deep with that. And it's so easy to take. And it's so, it's you're not driving down to the corner to pick up a bag of heroin. And you're not, you don't have to find any place to sneak off. You just run to the water fountain and pop one. And it, it creates so much less seedy, but also so less seedy. Yeah. But also the sur- your surrounding entourage, right? I mean, I, I the doctor's prescribing it for you. Yeah. Right. He must be in pain. He must be. Still oh yeah. Suffering. And 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 I don't know if this is the experience with your mom, but with me, I mean, I was right. I was way before there was any kind of prescription monitoring program. Yes, thirty and years. I, I mean, I there was it was like hand over fist, man. I would go into the doctor's office with the stupidest excuses. It's amazing how many times these pills were stolen out of my car. You would, you know, her purse was stolen at every movie theater she's been at. Yes. And (laughs) you would have thought that they'd have said like, Hey dude, lock your car. You know, (laughs) no one ever said anything. Well, then they started saying you need to have a police report, but then, and then you just changed the situation. And for a long time, it took forever for these things to be tracked. I had a situation. I had a funny story, man, where I was eating this, uh, one of those sugar daddies, you know, one of those yeah. uh, those caramel things, and I pulled a tooth out. I pulled yeah. like that, like, a tooth out, and I was like, "Oh!" And it didn't hurt at all. It did not hurt at all. But I was like, "This is good. I'm going to get some stuff for this." I go to the dentist, and they do the whole workup, and they take the X-rays and stuff. And I'm about to walk out, or I'm about to go out with my prescription and stuff. And the nurse comes in and says, "It's impossible for him to be in pain. He had a root canal in that tooth. There's no nerve." <laughs> And so I was like, oh, no. And you know what I did? <laughs> I, you, here's what I did I, in a very calm kind of like, because I, I was sort of like a, a business person. Like I was working on the kind of like the business end of healthcare, a training staff, HR type stuff. So, you know, I was dressed the right way and I was calm about it. I said, listen, you guys have an ethical ob- ob- uh, obligation to treat my pain. And I am in pain regardless. And, I, and I, you know, you bet. I almost said, like, you better lawyer up if you're not going to help me. And I walked out of there with the prescription. Oh, wow. You know, I walked and, and they, now I look back on that. And I'd love to meet that lady today. And I'd love to like give her a big hug and say, you were so right. You and, were on to me. You were on to it. And it, and it, and it, and it messed with me, man. Wow. It messed with me. When I got in the car, I got this thing filled. Don't get me wrong. I didn't like throw them away or anything, but I'm telling you, as true as I'm sitting here, it just was like, what is wrong with you, dude? Because it planted a truth bomb. It it planted a truth bomb. And what it was is it was her willingness to Just say something. To say something. That was going to be very uncomfortable. And she's right. Yes. It was, you know, it was very uncomfortable that I gave her the whole, who do you think you are? And I gave the doctor the whole, who do you think you are? And he couldn't handle it. Like, he was like, nope, here you go. Get on out of here. Life. But she was willing to say that. And that thing messed with me. And you can see 16 years later, like, I still remember that day. I still remember those events. 
but but she was one of the very few that ever said anything to me. That's where it starts. You're proving my point. It starts with the diff- acknowledging the difficult truths and the convert. And it doesn't mean it has to come across harsh or crazy, but acknowledging those tough conversations and calling a thing a thing, calling yeah. the truth what it is. It starts right there with the family yeah. members that are affected as much as the person that's struggling with that dependency. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely willing, willing to, to be a little bit uncomfortable. It's and willing hard. to risk that relationship for the sake of presenting this truth is going to lead us towards solution. Right. I, I can't be afraid to hurt your feelings. If I'm afraid to hurt your feelings by telling you a truth I believe I'm seeing that's not for the greater good, then I'm codependent to it. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. don't know if that's a dirty word or not, but I apply it to those situations. No, I get that. I'm that's just a... kind of winking at something when I'm not able to, to face it and acknowledge it too. Yeah, it's the phrase, it's the cliche I'd rather step on your toes than step on your grave. That kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's it. So then, and you've been in recovery 16 years, you said. What has kept you wanting to pursue this life? I had just heard recently that I'm so not familiar with all of these terms, and I don't remember them even if I've been practicing, you know, recovery. I've heard that it's so much easier to stay sober than to get sober. But what is it that's kept you well, I mean, I, I, I did a pretty, I did a very traditional recovery program. I, I was actively involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. I went back and I got a, a graduate degree in psychology. And so um, I wound up getting therapy for myself. I've done a lot of work on myself along the way. What has happened is it, I, it's hard for me to explain. Like, it's not even about whether or not I drink or take a pill today. I don't even think about it. I'm a person my identity has totally changed. So it's not even a struggle in that regard. What's kept me in a recovery process is just more on a self-improvement kind of a platform. It's not so much about if I, if I don't go to meetings, I'm going to want to get high. It's about how do I, you know, what do I want? What other aspects of my life do I want to improve? And then obviously I wound up, you know, working in the field in that that's become a, that's become part of the process. It's interesting, a funny story. I moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Greenville, South Carolina six years ago. And that means I had about 10 years in recovery when I moved. And uh, my mom called me, all right? And uh, she called me because she was wanting to know what my recovery program was now that I lived in a new city. Because she had heard that transitions are difficult. And she's right about that. But what my point being is like even 10 years later, this was still rattling around her brain. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This was mm-hmm. still, yeah. so she wanted to know, did I get a home group? Did I get a sponsor? And she also wanted to know if I, if I would consider doing yoga. And I was like, well, never done yoga, mom. I'm not sure if I'm going to integrate that into my recovery program, but I appreciate your concern. <laughs> you know, it's a, and I, you know, and I'm also, I'm working in the field and I'm like, mom, what are you talking about? I'm like, captain recovery. It's what I do for a living. But from her perspective, and, and we have to respect this in families. You don't get over this stuff. You don't get over it. I mean, I talked to my mom. I was just up there for the summer. And I mean, the st- I can't believe what I put her through. I can't. I would leave on like a Friday and be out. And this was way before cell phones and stuff. And like, she spent the whole weekend praying, am I going to come back? Right. You don't, you don't come back from that. You don't just get over that. No. Yeah. That's Annie and I just talked about this we, we, yesterday. Yesterday, and we said uh, we were talking about how how it changes you. It changes yeah. you forever. You are a different 
person forever now it's always there it's always in the back of my head even when I'm going through really good times and things are going great it still hangs there and also we can be so quickly thrown back into that awful crisis chaotic you know obsessive thinking simply because we have been changed in a way that our minds our bodies don't forget it just that's doesn't forget. That, that, that's because it's a trauma issue. Yeah. Not, I, I believe it's more of a trauma issue than necessarily a codependency issue. I believe if you see like trauma is if you're chronically exposed to dangerous situations for you or a loved one. That's the definition of trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell me addiction is not chronic exposure to dangerous situations. The family members, if your phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning, you're going to have this visceral, physical response to that and not be able to sleep the rest of the night and be taken back to all those situations. And it's not, and it's not because of enabling and it's not, I don't even believe like codependency is the most accurate description of that. It's a trauma response. It's buried in your brain and you're triggered. You know, my best, my best recovery from PTSD is I know there's post-traumatic stress disorder. I believe in post-traumatic growth. And like you were saying, what keeps you in recovery is developing other areas of yourself. You definitely want to recover and you don't want to run from the trauma you've been through, but you don't want to stay there. So you want to start developing out of that and and growing in the areas that it's brought into your life because you can stay so stuck. You can become so paralyzed. I was absolutely crippled with primal fear over my son's life that even when he was well, well, is he well enough? Well, is he getting well, right? Well, you know what I mean? Like everything was still beating to that pace and you have got to choose to recover. Yeah. And then you guys, what you're doing with your podcast and what you're doing with your mission, that's also Victor Frankl talks about making meaning out of suffering. And so I think that's a huge part of it too. Like, so the suffering that you experienced when you were dealing with your kids and, uh, and, and, and even the anxiety and, and, and when it rears its head now, but to try to channel that into this, this advocacy movement, this education movement, getting the word out, there's no, nothing more powerful than your experience. And, and so that's the, the idea would be that that also would maybe help you guys move forward in your own kind of process too. It's obviously helping other people, but I, I believe, you know, it, it can put wind in your sails. It helps you yeah. heal forward. It yeah. does. It does. And it, it, it's, it's almost like a selfish thing, right? It's, it's yeah. a selfish thing when, when I see someone else, benefiting or doing well it makes it makes me better yeah you know so in some ways it's selfish and absolutely but okay um annie do you have any more questions well i think that's about it i just i do want to ask do you think it's possible to get in front of this epidemic i mean not only to slow it down but to get in front of it and are you i mean what areas are you seeing hope and success so I think I think the great the great hope is around um, involving the family and what you guys are doing and just more of a grassroots kind of like advocacy that's sort of springing up all over the place. The 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 hope is. Do I have hope? Yes, I think there is a solution, but the problem is the barrier to the hope is the current system. When I get in a room with another committee. When I get in a room with another group of government officials who want to talk about doing something about this, it, it, it drags me down. 
But I think that the antidote to that is, is this like grassroots new approach. I don't care what you call it, coaching, personal advocacy, peer recovery, non-professionalized, non-institutionalized support for these folks that are dealing with this issue. I think it's going to take a radical shakeup, though. I don't think you're going to see it done via the 30-day rehab model. I think what you're going to see is, you know, there'll be more medication-assisted treatment, and then we'll figure out exactly what to do with that. I think you're going to see some, this is just my take, I think you're going to see the legalization of marijuana in all 50 states and Part of what will drive that is that you're already seeing in the states where uh, marijuana is legal, the opioid deaths have, have decreased. So you're going to see all this wild stuff that people are going to pull their hair out over. Oh, my gosh. And then society will come out the other side with it and we'll figure it out. But it, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. I tell you, I've been doing this for 17 years. I've never, ever seen anything like this before. So I do think we can get ahead of it, but we got to keep pressure on government officials and funding agencies to um, to do this a different way. Here at Favor Greenville, we have three or four projects going where we're gonna, we have a research component involved so we can push insurance companies for reimbursement for health coaching. That's awesome. So those type of things we see as the future. Keep the conversations going. You gotta keep, keep the conversations going. going. Yep, absolutely. Well, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep following you on Facebook. You'll probably see me commenting once in a while. And great, I, yeah. Yeah, I hope we I hope we can stay in contact, and I hope we can have you back on the podcast again. I think you've been uh, a really great guest. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I hope you can come back again. Yeah, I'll come back anytime. And if anybody wants come- to get in touch with you, what are your, if you don't mind, do you have any specific emails or social so media? Rich J, Rich J at favorgreenville.org. Uh, you can visit my blog at www.recoverycartel.com. Facebook, it's just Rich Jones, or Richard Jones, actually. I have a Recovery Cartel page. Just connect with me however you can. And oh, one I- last thing. How did you come up with the name Recovery Cartel? So I was reading a book called Narconomics, which is about, it, it's literally the subtitle is How to Run a Drug Cartel. I'm fascinated with how aggressive and innovative drug cartels are at making sure that they keep their product in front of people. And I thought to myself, wow, if we were that that aggressive with the treatment and recovery industry, maybe we would get somewhere with this. You know, cartels are ruthless, they move quick, and they have no mercy. So my deal is we need to be, where addiction is concerned, we need to be ruthless, we need to move quick, and we need to have no mercy. And so we're not going to wait for people to come to us. We're going to go after addictions. Kind of, it's this vibe of let's go on the offensive with this thing. So that's where it came from. Awesome. Good deal, guys. I, right, I appreciate so it. Much. All right. Okay, thank you. We'll keep in touch. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. bye. Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle 
and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.